Okay, Luke chapter 1, we're going to begin reading with the 26th verse. We'll read down through verse 33. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this uh, sacred word that we have just read. We thank you for this very familiar story of which we have just read. Father, we ask that, Lord, as we have already prayed, that you'd be pleased to communicate with us this morning, Father. We ask that we would hear your voice as we, as we seek uh, to understand your words. So, Father, we pray, teach us this morning, guide us in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. This morning we come to the fourth and final message in our series. And again, the title of this series is Restoring What is Lost. And as I've said several times through the course of the last uh, four weeks, uh, you know, our first message was uh, focused on really the awe and wonder of what we've just read. The awe and wonder of God stepping into our realm in the person of Jesus Christ. And we've been hearing this story, some of us, all of our lives uh, for many years. And we won't have given a, necessarily give an accounting of each one of those years uh, this morning, but uh, we've heard it many, many times. And because we hear, sometimes when we hear stories over and over again, they have a tendency sometimes to uh, lose some of the sense of, of awe and wonder, if you will. And of course, that's a drum I've been beating on for the last couple of weeks. And uh, I, I think in many ways we've lost a sense of awe over what's taking place here. And I also think in many cases there perhaps was never really a sense of awe in the first place. And all of this is to say, you know, this really is the spiritual condition that we're in. It's kind of humbling sometimes when we take this in. Um, but it is what it is, and we need the Holy Spirit to fix it. And that's... One of the things that we've been on about with this series is restoring what is lost. Uh, second, the next thing that we looked at was the fact that when Jesus stepped into this world, he came bearing a message, and that message is the message of the gospel, isn't it? And in the second installment of this series, I really sought to try to clarify what the gospel is because there's so much confusion over what the gospel is. And, you know, I'll give you an example that I encountered this week uh, over that very thing. You know, I, 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 one of the things that really is at the forefront of my, my mind and thoughts almost all the time is how to engage 
the culture uh, for Christ. I mean, it, it, it comes and goes. It's always on my mind. It comes and goes, but recently, I've just really, especially since our last session meeting, I've really been thinking about how do we, how do we engage this culture? What point of contact do we, uh, do we have or can we have with this culture? And, and I've really been looking at blues music as, an exa- as really a possible way upon which we might be able to make contact uh, with our culture. You know, years ago, I used to play blues. Played blues all the time. I love to play blues. And when I came to Christ, I pretty much immediately quit playing blues music. And uh, really, um, with the exception of maybe one offs here and there, it's uh, uh, at my brother's house uh, or uh, on occasion at the coffee hour, we've played a little bit of, of blues. We've pretty much hung it up. But uh, I've been reevaluating that. And uh, blues music has always had the ability to touch the heart. It's had the ability to uh, really to soothe the heart, you know. The whole idea about blues is really creating this musical tension and then releasing it. And the soothing aspect of blues music is that's what life is. Life is full of tension. And hopefully sometime down the road, a little bit of release. And that whole music genre and musical expression really it can sometimes just hold purse strings over the heart. And uh, uh, I've been looking at that as a possibility of making contact. And uh, there's been some scholarly works that have been written over the last few years in regards to that kind of thing. And I've been reading some of them. And wouldn't you know it, uh, in certain sections of these works written by biblical scholars, uh, they have a section, okay, what is the gospel? Um, I'm was reading one earlier this week thinking, okay, here we go. Let's see what we've got. And wouldn't you know, I mean, the gospel was the Sermon on the Mount or the gospel was uh, giving a cup of cold water to the, to the thirsty. And it's just completely botching up what the gospel is. And we see even, and especially in scholarly circles, you know, the, the gospel is, it's, there's so much confusion over what the gospel is. And that's why I really wanted to devote one section, one aspect of this whole series to restoring clarity to what the gospel is. Because the fact is that blues music may be able to, we may be able to make contact with with our culture with blues music, but there's one thing we're not going to do with it. We're not going to change hearts. That won't happen. And not with music by itself. It's possible, I suppose, if the message is told by way of song, that can happen. But generally speaking, it's going to take the proclamation of the gospel in order to change hearts. If we lose the gospel, we lose the cure. So there's a lot at stake here. So that was the second installment. Last week we looked at, okay, uh, Christ comes into our world bearing a message. As we embrace that message, as we embrace Christ... We find healing. And really, more specifically, what we were looking at last week was, okay, how does Christ heal us? How does he do that? And I gave you two words last week that helps me as I think about this. Two words that help us. If you're thinking about, okay, how does Christ bring healing to us? Two words were were, uh, sacrifice and intercession. As we think of those two words, sacrifice and intercession, I think you'll have two uh, cupboards, if you will, uh, to, to put all of the information in, in your mind. And we hear 
We're probably more about sacrifice than we do intercession. We, we, we hear about sacrifice. We hear about the fact that Jesus came and he died on the cross in place of uh, sinners like us and took the wrath of God in our place. We see uh, Wednesday night we were studying Hebrews where Jesus goes into the holy place. Uh, unlike all of the high priests that pointed to him, Jesus as the high priest goes into the holy place, not with the blood of animals, with the blood of bulls and goats and lambs, but with his very own blood. And he uh, sacrifices himself uh, to take the uh, penalty that we justly deserve. So we hear a lot about how we receive healing through the sacrifice of Jesus. But how do we... How do we find healing through the intercession? Well, the intercession of Jesus is, is an important part because the work of the cross has to be applied to us. It's not going to do us any good unless it's applied to us. And the Christ is, is intercessor. He is uh, dispatching the Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit, he comes to our hearts. What's he do? He opens up our blind eyes so that we can see. He opens up our hearts so that we can embrace the Savior who died for us, you see. And uh, he doesn't stop with there. It's not a one-time act. Christ is interceding for us even now. Now, I, as a pastor, I join in his work of intercession. Every Sunday mornings, typically, I'm up about 5.36 in the morning. What am I doing? I'm praying for you. I'm praying for me. It's more than just showing up and preaching a message. Uh, we've got to get up. We've got to pray. We've got to ask God to open up our hearts. I can preach the message, but if we don't have God literally opening up our hearts to that message, if we don't have God's activity of the Holy Spirit applying this message to our hearts, it's not going to do us any good. I'm not interested in anything short of eternal change, that our hearts would be changed eternally. That's the only thing that interests me. I'm not interested in band-aids. You interested in a band-aid? I don't want a band-aid. We want true healing to take place. Sacrifice, intercession. That's how this takes place. Now, with this introduction in mind, we're going to turn our attention to the kingship of Christ. As fallen human beings, we, we need two things. We need healing, don't we? We need healing. Boy, are we in desperate need of healing. I mean, we've got more woes than we realize. We need healing. But we also need security. We could think of it this way. You know, we, you know, we need food, but we also need shelter, don't we? You know, we can especially appreciate that this morning when it's in the 20s outside. So we have to have shielding. We have to have shelter. We need healing. We need security. And when we begin to see the majesty and sovereignty of Christ, the that need for security is met perfectly. Now, with this introduction in mind, we have one of the most famous Bible stories in the whole Bible as our text this morning, and really for good reason. Here we have, if you, if you look with me back to Luke chapter 1, yeah, we have the story of the archangel Gabriel coming to a young, poor virgin named Mary. He announces to her that she's going to miraculously conceive a son, and he is to be named Jesus and if you look at verse 32 of our text, we are told that Jesus will be great. You see that? 
Jesus will be great. And verse 32 through 33 expand on that. Uh, Jesus will be the son of the most high. He will be the son of David. And the Lord will give to Jesus David's throne. And Jesus will reign forever for his kingdom will have no end. I want to take a few minutes and look at this uh, because with these two verses, verses 32 and 33, we learn a lot about the kingship of Christ Jesus. We learn a lot about the majesty of our Lord. Uh, you'll notice, first of all, uh, that phrase, uh, son of the most high. He is to be the son of the most high. What does that mean? It means nothing short, uh, to use the language of the Nicene fathers, it means nothing short that Jesus will be very God of very God. That Jesus will actually be God. Uh, we might think, uh, uh, as an example, we might think months ago when we were in Matthew 26. And Jesus is before Caiaphas, the high priest. And uh, his this, the, the kangaroo trial is taking place. And Caiaphas, in verse 63, says these words to Jesus. He says, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, if Jesus says yes to that question, okay, he is affirming that he is God in the flesh. Uh, that's what he's affirming. And that's exactly what Caiaphas is up to. Uh, Caiaphas realizes if he says yes, then they got him. They can charge him for blasphemy and they can crucify him. Well, what does Jesus do? To not say yes would be the lie, wouldn't it? He affirms that he is the son of God. He affirms that he is the son of most high. And then that's it. Uh, they don't need to question him any further. They charge him for blasphemy and they condemn him to crucifixion. Uh, but uh, Jesus affirms yes because he is God. He claims to be God because he is God. Now... Because Jesus is very God of very God, he shares all of the attributes of the Father and the Holy Spirit. And we think of our training in the catechism. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are equal in power and glory, aren't they? They're equal in power and glory. Okay, because of that, okay, the Son of God, he shares in absolute authority absolute majesty, absolute splendor with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Okay, but notice what's said in verse 32. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Okay, if Christ is already God, how is it that he is to receive a throne? See the question? I mean, as God, he already sits on a throne. I mean, he sits on the highest throne in the universe. So how is it that the one who already sits upon a throne is going to receive a throne? How is that taking place? Well, the answer to that question is our subject this morning. It's what we call the mediatorial kingship of Christ. What is that? Well, it's Jesus as God-man. He receives a kingdom. Jesus as the God-man receives a kingdom. 
and he is coronated as king. In other words, uh, Jesus, the God-man, has been crowned as king of the universe. This is uh, really made public in a couple of ways. Uh, One, if we think again of the birth narratives, uh, when Jesus is born, uh, these strange fellows from the east come, who we call the Magi, and they come into Jerusalem, and what do they ask? They want to know where they can find he who's been born what? King of the Jews. There's a public proclamation that a king has been born. And then another proclamation is made when Jesus is crucified. Pilate writes uh, some words on a sign, and that sign is hung with Jesus on the cross. You remember that sign? It's written in, in an international way, by the way. It's written in Aramaic, Aramaic, it's written in Latin, it's written in Greek. And what does it say? Jesus, King of the Jews. Correct? And Psalm 2, uh, Psalm 2 verse 6 is talking about this. If you'll, if you'll keep your place in Luke and turn back to Psalm 2 with me. If you look at verse 1. Look at verse 1. The psalmist asks, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? You see that in Psalm 2? What's that all about? Well, here is the natural enmity towards Christ that we have as unbelievers. When I first came to Christ, I, <laughs> I probably have shared this with you, but I thought that sharing the gospel was just like some kind of philosophical issue. And I really believed I really believed that if I could just get good at communicating it, and if I could communicate it in a winsome way, that people, once they started seeing that, they would just like, they would just love this stuff. Oh man, was I in for, did I get a wake up call? I had no idea. I had no idea whatsoever that our natural hearts are just bent on enmity with Christ Jesus. We don't come to Christ Jesus because we don't want Christ Jesus messing with our lives. That's why we don't come to him. I, I was completely ignorant of all of that. Uh, but it's, it's very clear. Uh, Jesus said in John 7, verse 7, he says that the world hates him because he testifies about its works, that they are evil. He says the world hates him. And then later in John 15, verse 18, he says to his disciples, he said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And then in John 3, 19, we hear lots about John 3, 16. We don't hear nothing about John 3, 19. John 3, 19 says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. I've never seen that on a billboard along the highways of you. I've never seen that one on a billboard along the highway. Okay, left to ourselves, this is how we feel about Jesus. We hate him. If someone would have suggested that to me 20 years ago, I'd have been very offended by that suggestion that I hate Jesus. Because I didn't think I hated Jesus. I didn't think that I hated him. I mean, I didn't realize that that was going on. I, uh, I, I never saw it like that, but... I can't say that I loved him. I mean, I could have said that I loved him, but it wouldn't have been true. I wasn't living my life in a way that was lined up with him in any respect or fashion. Uh, In fact, I was living a lifestyle that was deeply offensive to him. 
And Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. If, if you know, we want to be with those we love, don't we? We, we really do want to be with those. He says, whoever's not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. And I was against him in my unbelief. And so is everyone else who is yet to surrender their hearts to Christ. This is what the psalmist is talking about in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Look with me to verse 2. Kings of the earth set themselves and rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, saying, verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, they're all in cahoots. What are they in cahoots to do? To strip away any notion of God. To strip away any notion of God. You know, Tammy and I were finishing up Christmas uh, yesterday. We're walking through the stores. and Man, it's really ugly out there, isn't it? Or is it, was I just catching folks on a bad day? But, you know, it's Christmas. C-H-R-I-S-T-M-A-S. And... Uh, it has nothing to do with Christmas, does it? I mean, nothing. Nothing. You know, stupid songs playing on the PA systems and uh, people disgruntled and pushing carts into each other. And it's not nothing to do with Christmas. Nothing. It's not hard to stand in those stores, and especially if you're a clerk in Walmart or somewhere. It's not hard to believe that the natural heart is enmity with Christ I think all we'd have to do is spend a half an hour in there and we would come to that conclusion look with me to verse 6 where he says as for me I have set my king on Zion my holy hill this is God speaking as for me I have set my king on Zion my holy hill. Here we see that God himself has installed and crowned his king. And this is what Gabriel is up to. And this is what he is on about when he comes and tells Mary that her son will receive the throne of David. And this is also what Jesus is on about after his resurrection when he says to his disciples, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. It's this mediatorial kingship of Christ. God has stepped into this world in the person of Jesus Christ. He's come bearing a message. He's come to bring healing. And he has been crowned as a king. He's been crowned as a king. And there isn't a stone out there that's not in control and under the control of Jesus Christ. There's not a molecule in this universe that's outside of his control. He is king. Now... What's that all about? What's that got to do with us? Uh, the best answer that I know of is given in question number 26 of our shorter catechism, which gives us the following things. It says that Christ's kingship is about subduing us to himself, ruling and defending us, restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. And that's what it's about. Now, I've already shown that left to ourselves, we don't want Christ messing with our lives. We don't think of ourselves as his enemies, but the scriptures, they make it clear that we are, don't they? So what is Christ's first work uh, involves changing that, uh, involves ruling and subduing us, if you will. 
Uh, where our hearts, the natural heart, is in enmity with Christ, and as Christ's work as king, his first work involves in conquering our hearts. That's what it has to involve, conquering our hearts. You know, as we think about me back in those days back in the music store, thinking that all I had to do was be a, give a winsome little message and people were going to come to Christ. No, the heart has to be conquered. You know, this, this is not going to happen independent of the word of nothing short of a miracle. You see, if, you, if you're sitting here this morning, you're in Christ Jesus, you're the recipient of a miracle. Well, if you think about it that way. Some people believe they're in Christ because they made a great decision. Well, you did make a great decision, but you only made that decision because there was a miracle performed. You got a new heart. God gave you a new heart if you're in Christ Jesus this morning. Or you wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be in Christ Jesus. That's just a fact. It's just a matter of fact. None of us had anything to do with being born, did we? Not the first time, nor the second time. Christ has to conquer our hearts. And that's his first work as a king. He has to conquer our hearts. Now the question of application is really obvious. Has Jesus conquered your heart? As you sit here this morning, as we think about this, has your heart been conquered? Because it's really possible to fall in love with church. We can, we can love the church. And we can love being in the church. And we can sit here with a, we can sit in church, and there are millions, probably millions of people sitting in church right now who are in complete enmity with Christ Jesus. They love the church, or they love the liturgy, or they love uh, some of the relationships that are in the church. You know, or they, they love this, they love that. We could love the gospel and not love Jesus. We need to ask ourselves the question, has Christ conquered our hearts? Well, someone might sit here and think, well, I, I, I don't know. I hope so. I mean, how do you tell? And really, the second thing here helps us flesh that out you want to know if Christ has conquered your heart? Ask this question. Is Christ ruling your heart? Is he governing your heart? Is he really on the throne of your heart? Because this mediatorial kingship of Christ, this is a spiritual reality. Think about what Jesus says to Pilate when he's on trial. He says to Pilate, he says, my kingdom is not of what? It's not of this world. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's a kingdom in which Jesus rules by way of the heart. Is Jesus ruling your heart? Is it your joy and pleasure to be ruled by Jesus? That's another way of asking the same question. Because we could say, oh yeah, Jesus rules my heart. But we go about it begrudgingly. I better let Jesus rule my heart. If I don't let Jesus rule my heart, then I can't say Jesus is ruling my heart. If I can't say Jesus is ruling my heart, well, then, then I'm out of the game here. No, 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 no. If you've got a new heart, if you've got a changed heart, that's your joy that Jesus rules there. Well, let, me, let me qualify that. Let me, let me say what I'm not saying here. I'm not saying we're living perfect lives here. You know, in my life, there's quarters and areas in my heart that have yet to be conquered by Christ Jesus. Let's make that real clear. Because if it weren't that case, then I would be a perfect person. And 
I don't need to spend too much time developing. You all know me well enough to know that I fall way short of being a perfect person. So there's areas of my heart that haven't been conquered, but the question before us now, is there a governing principle in your heart that really willingly and joyously wants Jesus to reign there? That's the question before us. Does that make sense? Christ's kingship also involves restraining and conquering all of his and our enemies. I mean, we, we live in a day when terrorism has affected virtually every aspect of our lives, hasn't it? You know, terrorism is a topic that's on all of our minds. And, um, I mean, we, have continue, we continually lose freedom to this assault. You know, if you want to go into, Colum- if you want to go into the courthouse in, in uh, New Cumberland now, I mean, you've got to go through a metal detector to get in there. And uh, there's still people who haven't been at the courthouse for a long time. They walk in and they see all this equipment and guards and they stop. Um, you know, 20 years ago, that would have been unthought of, wouldn't it? People are looking for security. Politicians are promising us that we're safe. And there are others that are promising us that under their leadership we'll be safe and People are looking to all these folks to protect them. And that in and of itself is not wrong, by the way, because government is ordained by God, and one of the functions of civil government is to protect its citizens. What is wrong is to expect civil government to do what only Christ can do. You want to be secure. There's, there's no way to be secure apart from Christ. That's why we are so insecure today. There's so little of Christ in our culture and in our nation. And to the measure that Christ is out of our culture and our nation, to the same measure, we're going to be anxious and insecure. And it's just the way it is. It's a spiritual law that you can't get around. It's like gravity. Uh, it's, it's just a spiritual law you can't get around. The only way to be secure is to be in Christ Jesus. But this is the beauty of the kingship of Christ. Again, let's think about it. There isn't a stone outside that's apart from the will of Christ Jesus. And... The scripture furthermore teaches us that in all things, God is working together for the good of those who what? Who love him and are called according to his purpose. Unfortunately, that, that verse, Romans 8, 28, is used so much and it's in some respects abused. But I think what happens to that verse more often than not is it's used in poor timing. You know, a verse like that might not be the best verse at the funeral parlor. But let's think about that verse for a moment. That is one of the most wonderful verses that we have in the New Testament. I can't begin to understand how the bombing in Paris or how this atrocity in San Bernardino could ultimately be for the good of God's people. I don't understand that. And I'm not even really comfortable even in saying this, but it's the testimony of Scripture that God is using all of these things. Would we dare say that? He's using all of these things. It's what it says. All things work together for the good of those who are called, those who are loved according to God's purposes. What does this doctrine teach us? It teaches us that though we might not understand these things, we might not understand why, Some of these tragedies that come into our lives come and go. 
might not understand why, but by faith we receive the fact that God's not out of control here. He's in control, and all of these things are working together for the good of his purpose, which is the salvation of his church. We don't begin to understand that, but I think as we begin to receive it, we're going to find a lot of comfort. So in conclusion, you know, let me back up for a moment, you know, before I conclude, let me leave you with one more thought here. As, you know, as we think about terrorism, I just one more thought in my notes here. You know, as we think about terrorism, as we think about, I mean, when you think about terrorism, what's the worst thing that you possibly think about? is that you could be traveling with your family somewhere and you could actually be caught in one of those terrorist attacks, right? If you're, in Christ, if you're in Christ Jesus this morning, here's a thought for you. If we were to be caught, if we were all on a bus and we were headed somewhere and we were, we were caught in one of their explosions and all of us were killed, then that would be the event that Jesus would use to usher us into his presence, wouldn't it? We would all be in the presence of Jesus, wouldn't we? What would he be doing? He'd be doing what he has promised to do. He'd be wiping away every tear off the cheeks of our eyes. Never to cry ever again. So you see the, the security that's in that if you're in Christ Jesus? Does that make sense? I understand this is a difficult doctrine. So in conclusion, God has stepped into our world in the person of Jesus Christ. He has come bearing a message. He came to heal our sin-torn souls, and he's been crowned a king. And because he's a reigning king with absolute power, he's able to conquer our hearts. That's the first thing he has to do. If he hasn't conquered your heart this morning, some of this stuff's probably really sounding bizarre to you. And it will until he conquers your hearts. Because until our hearts, are, until our hearts are conquered, we don't have eyes to see with. We don't have ears to hear with. And we think about what Jesus says to Nicodemus. Unless you've been born again, you can't even what? You can't even see the kingdom of God. It's invisible to you. You can't see it. It makes no sense. He has to conquer our hearts. And he's able to conquer our hearts. But he also restrains our enemies and he's able to work out all things for the welfare of our souls. And that, my friends, is security. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for these doctrines. And some of them, Father, we recognize are indeed quite difficult. It's hard for us to imagine, O oh Lord, how some of these tragedies could ultimately be used for the good of your people. But Father, as we think about that, we think of the greatest tragedy that's ever taken place in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And that is the event that has brought the ultimate good on, on all you've come to save, O oh Father. So Lord, these are difficult doctrines. And Father, we, we do pray for your grace that we may be able to receive them. And Father, we do pray for uh, anyone who may be here this morning, who may hear this message, whose heart is yet to be conquered by Christ Jesus, who his heart is yet to be opened up uh, by Christ. We 
pray, O Father, for your work of grace. We pray, Father, for the work of the Holy Spirit to give a new heart, to give eyes that see and ears that hear, that uh, these things would become uh, really things that would be quite visible, that, O Father, they could be brought into a state of grace. And and there, O Father, it would be their joy and pleasure to have you rule in their hearts. So, Father, we pray that, Lord, those of us who have walked in Christ Jesus for quite some time, Father, we pray that, Lord, you'd be pleased to fill our hearts with the joy of knowing that, Lord, you are in control, that uh, you are working. You're able to be our prophet. You're able to be our priest because you're our king. And, Father, because you're a king with absolute authority and power, you're able to accomplish all that you promise. And you're able to see our souls into safety. And you're able to protect us for all eternity. So, Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. Let's stand together and sing joy to the world.